the adventure. And during the past few weeks, we looked at something very simple, and that's the narrative of a guy named Nehemiah. He was a governor. He was a cupbearer to start with. Uh, he, he lived in a, a, around 445, 444 BC when he became the governor that was sent uh, from Babylon through the Persian Empire, the new appointed Persian Empire. Uh, and he went back to his homeland in order to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He left a fantastic cushy job, a great dignified type of uh, um, uh, palace and also the resources and prosperity that were available for everybody in the city in Babylon. Not everybody had returned back home to rebuild uh, their economy and to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, uh, but Nehemiah was moved by the power of God and the news and the concern for the people of God back home. More importantly, he was moved by the vision that God had given their forefather Abraham that the people of God will become light to the nations. And indeed, he went leaving the, uh, the palace that he was so accustomed to and went to a, a poor environment to uh, 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 recruit a team of people that will rebuild the wall, the burnt wall, and he confronted oppositions left, right, and center. He was completely surrounded by opposition as we have seen over the last couple of weeks. After rebuilding and the excitement of the rebuilding of the wall, there was a simple difference that the people of God noticed, and particularly Nehemiah and Ezra, who, were, uh, who, who went to, back to Jerusalem around 14 years prior to Nehemiah. He was a scribe and a priest. He was a spiritual leader, while Nehemiah was a political uh, governor in that city. They discovered that there is a difference. They discovered that there is a difference between doing God's project and being God's people. Disco discover the difference between doing God's projects and being God's people. In fact, from the time they returned to Jerusalem, almost 100 years earlier, under the leadership of uh, Sheshbashar or Zerubbabel, uh, they had a, a struggle between doing God's work and looking after their own affairs and after their own homes and after their own palaces. And in fact, Haggai the prophet had come to the people of God and warned them they can't let go of God's work in order to look after their own affairs. And the situation was still the same this many years later. And before you judge them, isn't it the same for you and for me? Isn't it the same that God gives us, God gives us a wonderful vision for what we could do for Him, but we always tend to go after our own affairs. And I don't know if you know other Christians People that have been in your life over the years that were fired up about Jesus. Maybe when they were young around the campfire, you know, they, they sung the Kumbaya and they gave their life to Jesus. And, and they were so excited about the future. And maybe they lived a godly life for several years. And then they were confronted with the reality and the experiences of the real world. And slowly, slowly, maybe they became stale and withered. They don't have the freshness. 
They don't have the excitement. They don't have the vibrancy in their walk with God anymore. They know the lingo. They know what it's like to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. They've heard the book read before and they can recite it. But deep within them, there isn't that spark. There isn't that fire. There isn't that vibrancy. There isn't that intimacy with Almighty God. And they keep pushing based on past experience. Oh man, the good old days and how you know God spoke to me and, and how God this, this, this and that for me. But the reality is they don't have current experiences, personal experiences with God. They've become logical. They've turned intellectual. But maybe you've seen other Christians who started really well with God, but slowly, slowly they've been sliding and they've been deteriorating. They're no longer going forward. In fact, they're going backward. And what appeared like something they would never do in the past, it's becoming normal because everybody else is doing it. So why not me? They have forgotten the price by which they have been purchased so they can be owned fully by God. And there is an element of compromise and deterioration. Or maybe you've seen people around who started well with God, but they seem to be stuck. They're not going forward. They're not advancing like uh, Paul said to Timothy, let your progress be made evident to all. And, and they're not really progressing. There is no evidence of their progress with God and their growth in their relationship with Jesus and their character and their unity with other people and their influence in the world. And maybe that's just you today. Maybe if you look in the mirror you realize you're one of those categories or maybe you're something else, but you're not where you wanted to be. Just like the people in Nehemiah's days. How could you and I rekindle the fire? How could you and I rebuild our relationship with Jesus? Well, the good news is, hopefully in the next few minutes, we're going to get an example from the life of Nehemiah and in the book of Nehemiah. Verse 1, it says that the people of God, once they've gathered together in a square before the water gate, they they the ones that told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So now that they have the wall surrounding the city, they have the square uh, in an area where it's closest to the source of the water. Uh, this is obviously was a huge deal for them because of uh, the burnt walls. They probably have never been in the square. The square was known. For, for people to sit together and communicate and justice was implemented and, uh, and the elders were around God's people. But here is a brand new day. And it says, so, and that's verse two, it says, so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all the children who were able to understand. The first thing that I want to bring to your attention is the idea of the seven months. The seven months in the Jewish calendar is considered as the new year for the Jewish people. It was a significant month. Uh, during that month, in the first day of the month, there was the Feast of Trumpet. It's the Feast of Communication. It's the Feast of uh, remembering that God communicates with people and His people communicated with one another uh, through the use, the use of a trumpet, whether it was a war cry, whether it was a gathering cry, whether a harvest cry, whatever it might have been. But on the 15th, 
10th day, it was the celebration of what they know as the Yom Kabur, which is the day of atonement, the day of atonement, the only day where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would offer a sacrifice and receive atonement, a payment for the sin of the people of God. And finally, from the 15th to the 21st of that seven months, they celebrated the feast of the Tapanacles. So on that very day, when the people gathered together and asked Israel to come and, and to do a Bible conference, if you like, or a, or a prayer conference, they recognized that this was a decisive day. They recognized that this is a new beginning. They recognized that today could be a fresh start for the people of God. So how did they handle that fresh start? It says in verse 3 and 4 that Ezra read aloud from daybreak break till noon, reading the word of, of God, the book of the law, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. That was the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the books of Moses. And Ezra the teacher also described of the law stood on a high wooden platform built for that occasion. This is the people of God who spend almost six hours every day in a Bible study where Ezra was elevated in a wooden uh, uh, podium and spoke the word of God, read the word of God to the people whilst the Levites around were trying to explain the word of God and interpret whether it's translated from Hebrew to Aramaic or actually just making sense and interpreting the word so everybody, even illiterate people could understand it. Whatever it mean, they were totally and utterly immersed in the word of God. What I want to bring to your attention is the idea of the water gate. Where were they gathering? They weren't gathering in a temple. They were gathering in front of the water gate. What is so significant about the water gate? Water in the scripture often resembles the activity of the Holy Spirit. Often resembles the activity of the Holy Spirit. Would you read with me John chapter 7 verse 37 to 39 and this is what it says. On the day and greatest day of the festival, which was the festival of the tabernacle in the New Testament we are here, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, Jesus meant the Spirit whom those who believed in Him will later to receive. Friends, many of us need to remember that for the Word of God to have its impact over our lives, for our lives to be impacted by the Word of God, we need to be surrendered to the activity of the Holy Spirit. 
Some people, based on their background, based in religious affiliation or denominations, have somehow ignored the critical role of the one person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you, no matter how much you read the Word of God, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit of God, you will remain a knowledgeable and judgmental person. You will never live the life that the Spirit of God intends to invest in you because the Holy Spirit is the only one that will allow you to live a holy life. The only one that by the, His activity in your life transform you and translates you from a selfish, ungodly way to live with the power of the Spirit of God, a holy, ungodly existence. That's why the people gathered in front of the source of the water, remembering that they need the power of the Holy Spirit to convict them, the power of the Holy Spirit to empower them, the power of the Holy Spirit to change them, the power of the Holy Spirit for you and I today is absolutely critical. And if you and I, or anybody that you love and adore, is experiencing this spiritual lethargy, uh, if they are withering, if they lack a plant that's being stale and withering, friends, we need the power of the Spirit of God to be so, so present in our lives. It says in, in Nehemiah 8, verse 18, they after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law. Here are the people of God experiencing a season of renewal, fresh hunger for the Word of God. I cannot tell you how many times I interacted with Christians in this environment and other environments who are so passionate about the work of God, who are so far about serving others, but they do not spend time with God's Word. There is no hunger. There is no appetite for God's Word. Have you ever seen a living being that does not eat on a daily basis. And the scripture tells us that your words were found and I ate them and your words were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart for I am called by your name. That means I'm the child of God, called by the surname of God. Friends, if you truly, if you truly want to know if God's Spirit is active in your life, if you truly want to know that you're alive spiritually and you're not dead and religious person, you need to find out whether you have hunger for the Word of God. Not an hour. People say to me, I don't have 15 minutes to spend with God. They were spending at least six hours from daybreak till noon. That's the hunger that tells me that the Spirit of God is active in our lives, if we want to be revived, if we want to be awakened, if we want to be the type of people that are fresh and our relationship with God is vibrant, not just merely a Sunday service experience, not just religious activity, not even just ticking the box of reading the Bible. If you want to have an intimate relationship with God, you need to beg the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Scripture on a personal level, on an intimate level every day. And ask him for the power so you could apply it. You will be a malfunctioning. You will be malnourished Christian. You will be ineffective if you do not allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to shape the Son of God in your life. They didn't just read the Word of God. 
they didn't just allow the Word of God to penetrate their hearing and their mind. It penetrated their conscience. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 and 9, and it says this. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened, as they listened to the word of the law. They were weeping. Why were they weeping? Because they allowed the word of God and the standards of God to convict them about what it is that is the discrepancy between how they're living and how God desired them to be. The Word of God declared to them the faithfulness of God, and it also declared to them the failure of man. The Word of God does the same today. The law is, is, is confronting to our activities, as Susie mentioned early on, not merely the big sins, even though that's critical, but the small little sins, not merely the behavioral uh, sins, but the motivational sins. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, even though nobody else knows that. The people were confronted by sin and their disloyalty to God over the years, and they confessed their own sins and the sins of their forefathers. It's written in Nehemiah chapter 9, which was a whole chapter about their confession of sin. It says they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. When the Word of God interacts with a willing soul, it convicts, it penetrates the heart. If you're reading the Word of God and you never feel a sense of sorrow over your sin, that you're hurting the heart of God, that you're not walking according to the plan and the purposes and the vision and the identity God has for you, you might be gaining lots of information, but you're not receiving transformation because only God transforms those who are truly and honestly repentant. It tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse, uh, sorry, chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. It leads to no regret. This is the way of God to those people who will mourn for their sin, who are broken over the way they've broken God's heart. Not taking sin so lightly, friends. We have so specialized in the grace of God that we've forgotten that the grace of God tells us to say no to ungodliness. That's exactly the same scripture. And the same writer who said that the grace of God is here for all of us is the same writer that says, but the grace of God tells us and teaches to say no to ungodliness. We can't take sin so lightly. It breaks God's heart. And sin, friends, I always tell our people, sin will blind you, will grind you, and will bind you. Sin is not a fun thing to have, even if it feels initially sweet. It will turn against you, will make your life bitter. Because sin will blind you, will bind you, and will grind you. 
they were repentant. They had sorrow. But the word repentance means metanoia, and the idea of a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's almost a U-turn where somebody says, I'm going this way, confronted by God's love and affection and standard, and I'm going to make a U-turn and go the other way. Friends, if you have been with Jesus before, and you remember the day, the campfire, the, the, the coming up the front, whatever it might have been for you to give your life to Jesus, but today you don't have that spiritual vigor. You don't have that intimacy with God. Friends, there is no other way. There is no books or conferences or worship services or jumping up and down or doing a, a, a particular ministry onto the poor. There is nothing else that God would need from you ahead of repentance. God wants you to repent. God wants you to be sorry for living a life that is not according to His way. And He wants you to ask His power to make a U-turn, but then to accept His forgiveness. Because God wants to forgive us of our sins. You see here, it says, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and it, which is literally go enjoy the fat. Go enjoy the fatted calf if you like. Go enjoy your day and send some of those goodies to those who have nothing prepared, this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites claimed all the people, uh, calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. You know, that is the heart of God towards you and the heart of God towards me. When I sincerely come to God and repent, when I sincerely come to God and say, I'm so sorry that I've broken your heart. I am so sorry that I'm actually disobeyed your, 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 your hopes and your plans for my life. Do you know what God says? He doesn't say, oh, you're rotting your own you know, sorrow for a while. I'm going to check you out after a few months. He doesn't do that. He says, don't grieve. The activity of the Holy Spirit is so evident in you. I don't want you to grieve anymore. Go rejoice. Why to rejoice? Why to rejoice? To rejoice because God has done something profound. Remember this month? This month, the seventh month of the year, is where they celebrate Yom Kabur. They celebrate the atonement, which reminds us of the atonement of Jesus Christ. I want to read you just uh, uh, what would have come to their mind around this month from the book of, book of Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 20. It says this, When Aaron, who was the high priest, has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward a live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites and all their sins and put them on the gates the goat's head he shall send the goat away into the into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task the goat will carry on itself on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness you know that the activity that used to happen they used to have two goats a sin offering and and, and another goat that would receive the sin 
or, or lumped on with the sin of the people around, uh, you know, the people of Israel. And that goat would go away into the wilderness and was called the remover. He, he removed the sin because they couldn't see the goat. And it almost was a symbolism of saying, and your sin I will remember no more. You know, that's what God does. He actually forgives our sin because of the sin offering of Jesus. But he also removes our sins far away from us so that we do not live with guilt, but live as righteous, unblemished people. I want to, I love that scripture that I want to bring to your attention in John chapter 16. And it's says this, when the Spirit of God comes, He will prove to the world that, that the world is wrong about sin and righteousness, or in your New King James, it would say, convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in Jesus, about righteousness, and this is what I bring your attention to, about righteousness of how do you know you're righteous with God? Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me, what? Well, you can see me what? No more. He is that goat, Azazel. He's the remover, the goat that takes the sin of the world upon his head and runs away where you can see him no more because he's taken your sin and my sin away and you do not have to live in guilt. And that is the only time where you can sincerely and honestly rejoice in the Lord. Not because you're hiding your guilt, not because you're hiding your sin, not because you're living in hypocrisy, but simply because the Lamb of God has taken away your sin and my sin. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? Let me finish off today. I've taken a bit too long. Let me finish off by saying this. That the people of God didn't necessarily only believe in the salvation of God and, and, he, and their forgiveness. And, and, and they you know, said, oh, this is awesome. Now we're going to go back to our old life. No, not that at all. In fact, they began to obey God in a serious way. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 8 again. It says, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seven months. The whole company that had returned from the exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. They recognized that there was a particular practice that God intended for his people to live out, but they weren't obedient to that. So they said, you know what? We're not just going to be forgiven of our sins. We're going to obey our Lord. Because when you adore the one who died for you, when you adore the one that forgave you, despite of the fact he doesn't deserve it, you're willing to to obey him step by step, even the little things that he asks you to do, even like that. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And that is a long time. The Israelites had not celebrated that tabernacle festival like this before. And their joy was very, very Great. What is this all about? This is about a feast of rededication. The feast of the tabernacle was basically to commemorate the fact that the people of Israel lived in the desert for a long time. They didn't have homes, but God promised them a promised land. So they recognized the journey that they had with God and how they had to live for His purposes because of His calling and covenant over them. 
And they also recognized that in the day when Solomon dedicated the, the temple, the, rededica- the dedication of the temple involved the celebration of that feast. So they were rededicating themselves back to God, right, just like the days of Solomon when the temple was dedicated to God when they lived in life of obedience. And also it commemorated God's willingness to bring harvest over his people that didn't deserve. So as a result of their obedience, they rededicated themselves to God. They said, we are for God's purposes and God's purposes only. If I have nothing else to say, I want to tell you, if you want to re-experience the favor of God, if you want to see the reawakening and the rekindling of your fire in your life, you need to rededicate yourself fully and utterly and wholeheartedly and uniquely to God because God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. They made a binding agreement. In the view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, they said, putting it in writing. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seal to it. They were serious about dedicating their life to God again. They made an oath. They made a, 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 a commitment. They said what it's, it's called cutting a, a covenant with God because an animal needed to be cut to have a, a covenant. And they were saying, we're going to agree. We're going to put an oath that we're going to live for God wholeheartedly, no, for, for, for no one else. They didn't wait over the next few months to see their performances. They simply made a decision there and then. To live wholeheartedly for God. You don't have to wait on yourself another week, two, three, or a month, or a year. All you need to do is say, if truly God deserves my life, I'm going to give it to Him wholeheartedly today. I'm going to rededicate it again today. Because friends, we're called to be on the altar as a living sacrifice. If you're a living sacrifice, you have the temptation to jump off all the time. And God is saying, would you jump on the altar again today? That you're no longer going to live for yourself, but for him who died for you and rose again. Would you do that? That's what dedication of your life, of your body, of your dreams, of your future, of your hopes, of your money, of your everything. Say, Lord, you own me all. And I want to give you every part of me. But they also made a decision to separate themselves from the uh, Gentiles around it. Not because God is not interested in intercultural marriages, but because he's not into interspirituality marriages. God is not interested for somebody who's not walking with God to influence those people who are walking with God. It says that the company that you keep would influence who you become. They made a decision to separate themselves from the world. And they also made a sacrifice. They made a sacrifice in chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. They made a sacrifice for the house of the Lord. I was hearing some commentators saying that they were in the millions of dollars, if you equate it to today. Millions of dollars of sacrifices. You know why? Just like Susie said earlier, that when God gets all of you, He gets your wallet as well. Nothing becomes dear to God. Friends, I want to finish off today by saying, there is no revival. There is no revival without revival. There is no celebration without transformation. And it is yours today to have.